Well, maybe there's some glory in saving a president or somebody, but just anybody. You mean like you? Yeah, like me. It's a matter of conditioning and discipline. I don't trust discipline. I know at that crucial moment I'd cop out. It happens. Mm, but not to you, fierce Frank, huh? It happens. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we watched 1992's The Bodyguard, directed by Mick Jackson, written by Lawrence Kasdan, and starring Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston. And Gary Kemp is there too. Yeah, I was looking at the IMDb for the credits, and do you know who Gary Kemp is off just by name? No. I kind of feel bad for him because he's being put in third behind Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston. I have no earthly idea who he is. Is he the bad guy for this movie? I've never seen it before. This is your pick that you're excited about. Yes, I am really excited about this movie. This movie came out when I was 11 years old. I don't remember actually watching the movie a crap ton, but what's special about it is that this soundtrack was my first CD. This movie is rated R. It is? It is. You know, that kind of tracks. Mom and Dad, that kind of tracks. I'm not sure why you would have watched this movie. Did you see it in the theater? No, no. It was probably a blockbuster rental. Okay. But I grew up as a child watching Dirty Dancing. Yeah, but I don't don't know what's in The Bodyguard. So I don't know what there is here that would make it rated R. So I don't remember either. The only thing I've seen of it is the trailer that we just watched. And, you know, other cultural osmosis things like Kevin Costner carrying Whitney Houston on the poster. I know that. Yes, that is very, like you said, cultural osmosis. I don't remember a ton about the specifics. I remember like the general movie, but it has been so long since I've seen it. And we're about to watch it through a very different set of eyes than I would have watched it as a teenager. So... (laughs) Honestly, I have no idea what I'm going to experience. If it's at all quality, I'm a little concerned because we just sat down and watched the trailer and Kevin Costner's acting. It's just not leading man romantic. It's pretty on par with everything else he's done. Yeah, like he just seems really wooden, which is, yeah, that's Kevin Costner. He's a good actor, but I don't... Picture him as a romantic lead. So this is the year after he did Prince of Thieves. And he was pretty good. Yeah, he is at the height of his powers right now. And I don't know if what he did in Prince of Thieves was him playing off of the other people around him and they elevated him. I'm not sure. I don't look at Whitney Houston and say, oh, yes, there is an actress for our times. Like, I know her primarily as a singer. Right. Did she even do anything else acting wise? She She has a lot of credits. A lot of them are music videos. Right. No, the Preacher's Wife and Waiting to Exhale. Those are both genuine acting credits. And then we go into Prince of Egypt where she was soundtrack. soundtrack. So I think she has done a few, but it's not her bread and butter. Hmm. I was a bit surprised by the trailer because 
while I don't know much about the movie, I did not expect there to be so many different, I guess, sources of threat in the trailer. There's something that explodes. There's a home invader. There's something about don't be a cocky driver because he gets shot. It seems like, based on what I'm seeing in the trailer, that Whitney Houston is just the singer with the biggest target on her back in the world for some reason. I am hoping that it gets explained why everybody wants to kill her. Mm. I think the trailer was pretty crappy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure what kind of movie it was trying to convey itself as, but it is an action romance from what I remember. And the trailer did not tell us a story. (laughs) No, it did not. I mean, there's probably some things you could say about a trailer not giving away the story to a movie. You know, Uh, the trailer reiterated to my memory exactly what my memory thought. Hmm. So uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm excited to see it again. I'm nervous that it won't live up to my brain. Mm-hmm. I expect that I will enjoy it just fine, but it still won't be as good as the soundtrack. That the soundtrack sense. for this movie is amazing. I still think about it all the time. Without going into any in-depth reviews, this movie has a 6.3 out of 10 after 132 reviews. 132,000 reviews. Oh, 132,000. Yes, sorry. But that's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Voting into it. So I'm imagining something above average. And I'm sure it's not just the soundtrack that makes this movie so well-renowned. I don't know. I mean, some of Whitney Houston's most well-known classics are from this movie. Yeah. I don't know how to feel if, uh, like, you've got a movie and the only thing that people care about it is the soundtrack. I guess I shouldn't be surprised that that happens. I'm sure there are other movies like that. The one that comes to mind that competes the best with its own soundtrack is Shrek. Mm. That soundtrack is a fantastic soundtrack, but the movie's also great. Yeah. I think you could probably also put Forrest Gump in that category. Yeah. Forrest Gump had an amazing soundtrack. It really did. And the movie itself is long. It's elevated by its soundtrack. Yeah. That is a great example of a movie being elevated by its soundtrack. Absolutely. I suspect this movie will be, again, elevated by its soundtrack. Okay. Listeners, you know the deal at this point. I am going to play the trailer for you. And when we come back, we will have watched the movie and we will let you know what we think of it. Yeah. And for you listening to the trailer, it's basically just going to be Whitney Houston singing. Yeah. And a bunch of noises. Yeah. (laughs) Someone getting thrown around a kitchen at one point. Enjoy this performance of Whitney Houston. Yeah. We'll be back. Frank Farmer to see Miss Marin. What? Alexander Graham Bell to see Miss Marin. All right. Bill said he used to be with the Secret Service. That was two years with Carter, four with Reagan. Reagan got shot. Not on my ship. All my colors for you. All right. You don't look like a bodyguard. This is my disguise. <laughs> well, his timing's good. Henry, I've spent a lot of time guarding people all over the world, and I found one thing to be true. No matter how incompetent the assassins, no matter how much they miss their target, 
There's one person who always gets hit. Who? The cocky black chauffeur. You afraid I might get picked off in my snazzy running suit? No, I'm afraid that I'm gonna have to jog with you. Someone was in my house? <laughs> Wait a minute, someone was in my house? Everybody's afraid of something. That's how we know we care about things. When we're afraid we'll lose them. How about you, Frank Farmer out there on the edge? Rachel, I don't want to get confused about what I'm doing here. I'm not confused. You pay me to protect you. That's what I do. Then what is it? I'm afraid of not being there. And we're back. Julia, what are your initial thoughts coming off of the end of The Bodyguard? The version that I saw as a teenager was most definitely a cut-for-TV version. (laughs) So we discovered over the course of watching this movie that the reason it's rated R is because they say the F word four times, which is three more than you're allowed to say in a PG-13 movie. Honestly, I thought it was because of there was a sex scene, and I knew there was a sex scene, but there's not. No. They have sex. They film none of it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's definitely not the reason it's rated R. It's, yeah, four F-bombs. Yeah. That's it. So I can definitely assume that this was an easy TV edit. You know, maybe don't show some of the crazy, not ransom letter, but, you know, stalker note. Maybe don't show some of those. Maybe skip over the part talking about the creepy blonde guy masturbating in the house. You know. Cut those things out and you know what? you're good for TV. I'm pretty sure that was cut out because that was a complete surprise to me. I didn't remember that at all. Mm, yeah. I didn't know about it going in, so yeah, <laughs> everything was new to me. Something really bothered me about that masturbation bit was that they didn't bring the cops in. If they had brought the cops in, they could have had DNA evidence on file. Yeah. Although in 1992, was DNA evidence really a thing? I think it kind of started more in the 80s, was it, but- was that something that they would have pulled from a crime scene like that? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know. I made the comment some other time in the movie that if this had been made today, it would have been a very different way that they treated a lot of the subject matter. Mm-hmm. What were your initial impressions? I really liked this movie. I have one major complaint about it that I'm going to save for my least favorite part. Okay. But aside from that... I really liked this movie. I think the character of Frank Farmer, perfect Marvel name, by the way, you know, two two letters, first and last name. Frank Farmer is an excellent role for Kevin Costner because he has to be so stern and professional and only at very specific times sneak through that he has any emotion at all. And so it's perfect for Kevin Costner's range. Yeah, it really is. (laughs) Something that I noticed is that even when he was forming emotional relationships with individuals and he was becoming more comfortable with them, his manner of speaking did not change. Mm -hmm. His words did. If he needed to convey something emotionally, he just said the words. He didn't, you know, 
look at you a certain way. He- <laughs> Listen, film is a show-don't-tell medium, but Kevin Costner is a tell-don't-show type of actor. He We've learned that. He's no Mel Gibson or Tom Hardy. He no. does not act with his face. No. At all. Not even the littlest bit. Again, this is a perfect role. Oh, my gosh. I genuinely enjoyed him in this role. Whitney Houston was amazing. Oh, she sparkled in this role. Yes. I loved her so much. In fact, the other two movies that are in her top four, Waiting to Exhale and The Preacher's Wife, I would like to go watch those movies because I enjoyed her performance in this one so much. All right. I'll make a note of that and make sure we get access to it. Yeah. (laughs) She was absolutely phenomenal. Now, you said that your experience with this movie is more than likely a TV edit. Um, When we were going through the different stages of the plot, did it all feel very familiar? No. It has been a while since the last time you watched it. Yeah, let's see. It came out when I was 11, so that's nearly 30 years ago. Which was kind of nice because I had a sense of the general plot. Like, I knew that she was receiving creepy letters and death threats enough that they brought in a specialist. Mm -hmm. And I knew that the climax of the movie was her actively trying to be killed. Now, in my memory, Frank died. He didn't. And I knew that there was a lot of back and forth, like, trust issues. And I knew there was dating and stuff. Mm -hmm. I did not remember who the culprit was. So I was just as surprised and wondering when you start getting to know the people in her entourage, you're like, oh, Cy, he's super creepy. I suspect him. And then, oh, Nikki, there's something funky about her. I suspect her. And then like, there's Tony. And you're like, well, he's just a crappy bodyguard. Yeah, boy. And clearly in love with Rachel. (laughs) So like, there are these people around her that are clearly suspicious, and the movie is clearly trying to point us in several directions. Mm -hmm. And I honestly could not remember which one was the correct one and which ones were red herrings. So I was trying to read people and figure it out. Mm -hmm. And probably about halfway through the movie, it started to become clear who was the culprit. But I did not remember. There are two twists to this movie. The first twist is that Nikki is the bad guy. She hired somebody to murder her sister. Then the second twist is that we are actually following two separate criminals. We are following a obsessed fan who is relatively innocent, just deranged. He's deranged and creepy. And he's the one writing the letters. He's the one who broke into her house and masturbated in her bed. Yeah. So it's not that he's not a criminal. You could argue that he's probably harmless right as far as actually going through with the murder plot he is just obsessed in an extreme level yeah in a sickness level he is sick and then we have an individual who is actively trying to murder her Mm -hmm. because he was hired to do so by nikki so it takes most of the movie to realize that they are two different people so that's the second twist i did not remember either one of those twists so especially the two separate people twist I was surprised by. I didn't necessarily expect them to start this movie with a Rambo 2, or I guess it would be Rambo First Blood Part 2 style, hey, we've got to get you back in the game sort of setup with Frank being like, ah, no, I'm 
I'm not interested, and then he gets coaxed into the job. It kind of felt a little, maybe Roadhouse? <laughs> yeah. I, this... heard, I heard you're the best in the biz. Come work for me. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> this guy is the bodyguard version of Roadhouse. Yeah. Exactly. And in fact, the plots are parallelable. I mean, they're only four years apart. Yeah. There are lots of people in Rachel's entourage who don't want Frank there. And Cy actively works against Frank. Mm -hmm. How many times did Cy try and fire Frank? And oh Frank's God. like, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, like three or four times. You don't get to fire me. I'm not sure who does have the power to fire Frank. I kind of feel like nobody does. <laughs> kind of feel like Frank's going to go when he is ready to go. And yeah. until then, he is going to stay and protect you. He quits at least like twice mm -hmm. in this movie. So nobody wants Frank there because... The lifestyle that Rachel has set up for herself and her entourage is extremely cushy and relaxed. It's very flighty. And it's a lovely lifestyle, but not when you have obsessed fans and an active hit out on you. Yeah, I was not crazy about the old guy played by Bill Cobbs. I don't know if it's Bill Devaney. Oh, a Devaney. It's Devaney. Devaney. I think it's Devaney. I, I don't remember it's hearing Devaney. it out loud. But with... Devaney and Sai hiding things from Rachel. Oh, that was so bad. That was so sketchy. Yeah, somebody broke into her house, and she doesn't know that. Like, and a lot of Rachel's motivations are centered around her eight-year-old son, as they should be. Yeah. So how is she supposed to be the breadwinner and the leader of this household when she doesn't have important information and there is a child involved? Yeah. Like, like Devaney geez. does seem to have a position of authority in this household. He all by himself goes out and hires Frank, but he does not have the ultimate authority. Rachel does. And it's like, Rachel's not taking this seriously, but it's like, if she knew what was going on, she'd be able to make a better decision about how she structures yeah. her life and her day. Like, I'm not saying that she needs to live in paranoia or anything like that no and later on in the movie the point is made about how frank is driving her to paranoia and it hurts her performance yeah. she cannot perform at the oscars with her award announcing thing because mm -hmm. she's too paranoid but that's what education is for yeah it's that oscar scene reminds me of the conversation that frank and rachel have earlier in the movie where they're talking about instinct versus discipline mm -hmm. and how Rachel hates discipline because she knows that in situations where the chips are down, that she's just going to go with her instincts. Right. But Frank is there trying to say, like, no, discipline is very important. So that way, when things are happening, that you can hold it together. Right. And yeah, the climax of the movie proves that point mm. several times, I think, is that, you know, Things happen, and Frank makes logical decisions, and they turn out to be the correct ones. Yeah. Like when he pulls Fletcher, the eight-year-old, off of the boat into freezing water, which is a very dangerous situation. Everyone's angry at him at first. And then the boat explodes. And then the, blo the boat explodes. Oh, my god! Because he used his training and his discipline to recognize a threat, even when nobody else did. And so he acted on that threat. He didn't act out of momentary instinct. He acted on his 
discipline and his knowledge of his job to choose the lesser of two evils yeah is pulling the kid into the cold water it took a while for that boat to blow up and i said out loud that boat better blow up (laughs) (laughs) i mean we saw it blow up in the trailer that's true that's very true frank cannot be wrong the whole point of the movie is that frank is right yeah Something that I noticed in the movie that I thought in my head, ooh, I want to make sure and talk about that, is Frank's relationship with Fletcher, the Mm. son. Now, Fletcher is eight. Enola is, what, like 10? Yeah. They felt very similar in age. Very similar. And the Fletcher felt a lot more mature for his age, though. Yeah, he did. And I wanted to kind of compare the two relationships. Frank does not seek out the friendship of Fletcher. He is... Waiting for somebody happens to be waiting near the pool where Fletcher is playing. Fletcher, who is a fairly outgoing, like quietly outgoing kid, walks over to him and says, hello, how are you? So Frank doesn't ignore him. He doesn't treat him as a nuisance. He says, I am fine. How are you? And they start to get to know each other. Cordial. Yeah. And throughout Frank's employment, there are little scenes here and there of the two of them interacting. They're usually in montage mode sort of thing, so we don't really get to hear what their relationship sounds like. But then later on, after some bad things happen, after Nikki is killed, Fletcher comes over to talk and to console Frank, and they have a wonderful conversation about what Frank is afraid of. Mm. And Fletcher, this eight-year-old kid, is like, pushing this conversation onto Frank, but not too hard, not in a way that's going to like push Frank over the edge. But he's like, no, we are going to have this conversation. Tell me what you're afraid of. And I found it so interesting that Fletcher was pushing to know what Frank was afraid of. And I have to wonder, was Fletcher looking for some sort of reassurance? Be like, oh, I'm not afraid of the guy trying to kill Rachel, he ultimately discloses that he's afraid of not being there when something happens. Yes. Because as something we mildly, like, literally know throughout the movie is that he was the Secret Service agent with Ronald Reagan. But he was not on duty the day that Reagan was shot. He was at his mother's funeral. He was at his mother's funeral! And he feels guilty for not being with Reagan that he could have protected him better than the several other Secret Service agents that were with him. Like, you pointed out when we watched the trailer and they said the line, oh, you know, you were there working with Reagan. He got shot. And he said, oh, I wasn't working that day. And then you said, but Reagan lived. And yeah, Reagan didn't die. Yeah. It's not like a JFK situation. This isn't survivor's guilt. Yeah. Reagan's fine, because you are not the only wonderful, amazing Secret Service agent in the world. So was everybody else there that day. Mm-hmm. And Reagan was fine. Was it Reagan's assassination attempt where a Secret Service agent did die? I'm not Probably. entirely sure. I have not looked that closely right. at Reagan's assassination. A side effect of us watching this movie nearly 30 years later is that in 1992, we probably would have known that. Yeah. It would have been recent enough in our culture that we probably would have known, oh, there was a recent assassination attempt and one of the agents died. We would have known. And now, like, I have no clue. I just looked it up real quick. Yeah. The attempted assassination, it was March 30th, 1981. 
Oh, way before this movie. Way Nine before. years before yeah. this movie. So Reagan was wounded when a bullet ricocheted off the side of the presidential limousine and hit him under the arm, breaking a rib, puncturing a lung, and causing internal bleeding. They got him to George Washington University Hospital, and he was stabilized in the emergency room and then underwent surgery. So the White House press secretary, James Brady, Secret Service agent Tim McCarthy, and D.C. police officer Thomas Delahanty were also wounded, but all three survived. Okay. The press secretary, though, James Brady, he suffered brain damage and was permanently disabled. His death in 2014 was considered a homicide because it was the ultimate result of that brain injury. It it took a while, but it was because of that shooting. And then the guy who shot Reagan tried to kill him. He was found not guilty on reason of insanity. Was he the Jodie Foster guy? Yeah, he was the guy who was trying to impress Jodie Foster. Yeah. Interesting. That kind of speaks a little bit to why Frank is like, I don't do celebrities. Yeah. Again, I think if we had watched this in 1992 and been adults, not the children slash babies that we were, (laughs) (laughs) we probably would have known that and made that connection a little bit. That's why he doesn't work with celebrities. You know, it's funny. I definitely didn't make that connection when we were watching the movie that yeah you know and i mean he he did also protect carter nothing really happened yeah carter. carter yeah carter was he was very quiet and yeah and low key and honestly reagan's assassination didn't have anything to do with reagan yeah it easily could have happened to carter if that's the time period that the gunman chose to mm-hmm. do it and yeah actually wow that really explains some things yeah So something I did not expect to see in this movie was Frank being a sword boy. Yeah. Like, at one point, they go down into what I assume is his apartment space. Yeah. Basement, I guess. There was a set of stairs they walked down, right? He's got like a bunch of boxes with photographs and memorabilia that he hasn't hung up on the wall. The only thing he's hung up on the wall was a samurai sword. Yeah. I appreciated the sword in connection to... They just went and saw what we think was Seven Samurai. It was specifically, uh-huh. I think, yeah, internet knows. Yojimbo, because oh, okay. Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote this movie, wrote this movie, The Bodyguard, inspired by Yojimbo. Oh, okay. Okay. So yeah, that makes sense that that was the movie that they went and saw. I like that little connection. See, yeah. you would never know that unless you read into interviews and- Stuff that people have said. Yeah. But that's nice. I like that. Thanks, Wikipedia. Because I didn't know that this storyline paralleled another storyline. Yeah, that's new to me. Which, th- this movie has a lot of parallels of other things. Mm-hmm. The song, I Will Always Love You, oh my is gosh. a huge parallel. I knew that it was part of the plot, and I didn't tell you on purpose. I Because I knew that you had no clue, but I knew that it was part of the plot. I really it like was how really it hard. was introduced. So... Like, when they go on their date, and they're in, like, the cowboy diner, where nobody knows who this internationally renowned, Oscar-nominated, Grammy-winning, I'm assuming Grammy-winning, but, like, she's an actress-singer, and nobody has any idea who she is. Yeah, because they're country folk. But, like, when they're they're dancing to that song, first of all... Oh, the rendition was terrible. the, the, The male cover singer why couldn't they have used dolly parton just use the dolly parton version yeah 
that's part of the loveliness of the song is yeah. that it's Dolly Parton and the story behind it. So I was I was disappointed that they used a different cover of it. But I love that they had a whole conversation about the song. How depressing it is. And, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, it's depressing. It's a goodbye song. Yeah. You know? And I was like biting my nails at that point. Uh, and then at the end, when they have to... Well, I don't think they... Ha- I, think, he... I think Frank is the one who decides that they have to say goodbye. Right. Like I said before, I'm pretty sure Frank is the only one that can decide whether or not he works for her. Yeah. And he decided no. And that's when the Whitney Houston cover comes in. Yes. And the lyrics just hit different because like as she's singing it now she understands the context of the lyrics and so she's able to put all of that into the version and oh it is so good i think its attachment to this movie and this storyline are why that cover is so good Mm. is that it's a great song to begin with dolly parton it's an amazing song but whitney houston's version of it is just something special and It is more special if you've seen the movie and the context. Yeah. Before we watched this movie, we were talking about, is the movie better than the soundtrack? Oh, yes. I definitely wanted to talk about this. Since you have so much experience with the soundtrack, way more than I do. I should pull up a track list. It's been a long time. Okay. So, no. This movie is not elevated by the soundtrack. Many of the songs on the soundtrack are not obvious in the movie. Hmm. There was one where I could hear it playing in the background. I'm like, oh, that's from, I recognize that one. There were other ones that I did not hear at all. The song that Nikki is singing when she's out in the woods and she thinks she's alone, the version that is on the soundtrack is only Whitney Houston singing. Mm. It should have been a duet. Yeah. It really should have been a duet because Nikki was a lovely singer. It really annoyed me how in the house, there was always a Whitney Houston song playing in the house. When, okay, when Cy and Devaney took Frank up to the stage bedroom where the obsessed fan broke in, masturbated on the bed, it's not her real bedroom. It was for a magazine. Mm-hmm. So it's all luxurious, like to the max. In the room, her music was already playing before they entered. And when they entered, Cy turned it off so they could talk. I'm glad you brought this up because it's a bit ridiculous that... Everybody seems to be constantly, not just listening to the music, but blasting it at max volume at all hours of the day, it Mm -hmm. seems. I understand that as a singer, songwriter, performer, you need to have all of the lyrics memorized. So, like, when she was sitting by the pool listening to her own song on her headphones, it makes sense. You know, you want to make sure that for how many dozens of songs that you have that you know every lyric by heart and you don't mess them up and you've got to practice, nail it every time type of thing. But yeah, with just... Always. Always. Always listening to her music. No matter who you are, where you are in the house, it's just constantly playing. It really helps me empathize with the sister. (laughs) Yeah. Nikki. Oh. Mm, Nikki. Nikki, who had the ambition to start a band as a child. And then her sister got involved. Ah. Being a sister, I know I've mentioned it before, is different than being a brother. Mm. It just is. Now, I don't have that particular experience. My sister and I never competed for excellence in the same field. Yeah. We each had our own fields. 
that we did things in. So we were never doing the same thing. In fact, in church, I wouldn't sing because everybody else in my family sang. I'm like, no, I'm not, no, <laughs> I'll pass. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm also not a great singer. So I don't have that exact experience, but the whole sisterly relationship thing, absolutely. It's delicate mm-hmm. and it is emotional. And when something goes wrong, it can take a lot of time. It can fester. It can it can just turn the relationship really rotten. Yeah. Especially considering that, you know, Nikki had the idea. It was, mm-hmm. her, it was idea her idea to do the band. And she never asked to be upstaged by Rachel. Yep. That's just how it happened. Did you notice when Nikki was out in the woods and she was singing her song, she thought she was completely alone. She didn't know she was being watched. And then Rachel comes up behind her and joins her and at first is harmonizing with her in a very lovely way. And the look on Nikki's face is lovely. She's happy. And then Rachel takes over. Yeah. And you can see Nikki's face fall because Rachel came in. Nikki doesn't mind Rachel participating. It's the taking over. That she minds. I understand that Rachel would want to take care of her sister, put her in a position where she can help by making her an executive assistant type situation. Yeah. But. No, it's servitude. Yeah. She was her servant. It wasn't her being able to be her own person. Mm Mm-hmm. This reminds me of two other movies. One is America's Sweetheart, where it is. Catherine Zeta-Jones and Julia Roberts, they're sisters. Catherine Zeta-Jones is the actress and Julia Roberts is her sister and she is her personal assistant. Mm -hmm. And they have a very similar relationship of like Julia Roberts' character can't be her own person because she's always in the shadow of her famous sister and the story of getting out of that shadow. Now, she doesn't kill her sister to do it. So there's an example there. And then the other example is, can't remember the name of the movie, it's the Jennifer Lopez playing the Latina singer from, like, the 80s. Selena? Selena, yes. Yeah, there you go. She wasn't a blood relative, but it was someone very close to her. It was part of her entourage. Got super jealous and had her killed. (laughs) I don't remember if she had her killed or if she killed her herself. I don't recall. But she was the cause of her being killed. Do you think it was a narrative cop-out that Nikki was killed. Ooh. Because Yes. Yes, I do. I think they I, I think they didn't want to tackle the subject of that part of the sisterly relationship or Frank having to tell Rachel or not tell Rachel. Rachel is never told. I'm pretty sure she's never told that her sister is the one who hired the hit on her. Like from what we see, she goes to the end of this movie never knowing who put the hit out on her. Mm-hmm. And that is just more of the same from the beginning of the movie where no one is telling Rachel anything. Yep. And it's only damaging Rachel. Yeah. There's a point at which Cy, who is her manager? Yeah. He's publicist. Yeah. Somebody who controls a lot of her career, but not necessarily her personal life. Personal activities. Yeah. Public appearances, etc. He makes a comment to Frank, are we having a communication problem here? I'm like, yes, you, you, you are the communication problem. Frank does not have trouble communicating. You do. Yeah. You are the one who set up a concert in a club and didn't tell head of security. You are the problem. 
That was one of those moments where I'm like, hmm, that's very suspicious. Yeah, I I really like the relationship between Frank and the driver Ooh. slash Frank's assistant. Yeah, the driver. What was his name? What was his name? Henry? Oh, wow. Fletcher's all grown up. Of course he is. He's my age. Um, Fletcher is my age. There's no picture of Christopher Burt, so it might be Henry. It was Christopher Burt, so yeah, Henry. Okay, Henry. Uh, I really liked him. I really liked how Frank came into this situation and he met Henry, and Henry was injured by the previous assassination attempt. Yep. And so Frank brought him under his wing. And I bring up the Frank-Henry relationship because they are out in the driveway. Frank is showing Henry how to check the car for bombs, and then the entourage bursts out the front door with... Sai and Rachel and Tony and all of them and they are going out. And Frank is like, "Why didn't you why didn't anybody tell me this was happening? He can't prepare adequately right. for this sort of situation." And everybody blows him off. Yeah. Even Devaney and Sai who know all the details blow him off. Yeah. Like, what why are you hi- why did you hire him then? Yeah. Why? And that's the situation in that club. That's where we get the poster for the movie. Yes. The moment when she throws off the cloak that she's wearing and displays this like metallic, very Madonna-esque outfit that she's got underneath. Oh my gosh, it was amazing. (laughs) It was so good. I even like, I knew what was going to happen. I knew the outfit that was underneath. Yeah. But like, I knew you didn't. And it was so good. So good. I loved it. Can you imagine being in that crowd and this performer that you adore is up on stage and wearing this cloak, and all of a sudden throws it off and is wearing this fabulous outfit underneath, like, go absolutely ballistic. That would have been insane to see in person, you know, you know in this situation, but yeah. Yes. And, of course, yeah. the excitement of the moment, that's what leads to trouble, mm-hmm. is because the club itself and her personal security detail are not prepared for this level of excitement. And the... Club security do an admirable job, but they are overwhelmed and people rush the stage and she gets pushed off. And as soon, oh, it's terrifying. As soon as she gets pushed off the stage, people start ripping things off of her costume. Yeah. They take her headdress yes. off of her head, which has her mic in it. So she's completely disconnected now. Yep. <sighs> yeah. It was terrifying. Yeah. So that's the incident that, of course, gives us the the poster. It also brings Rachel around to the realities. And it's funny because it has nothing to do with the specific reasons Frank was brought in. Mm -hmm. That was just an overwhelming crowd that he saved her from. And I feel so bad for that club because they probably didn't know that she was coming. (laughs) Yeah. Like, she showed up at the front. The club was already packed. And then they, like, sneak her in the back and the buzz starts up instantly. Oh, she's here, she's here, she's here. And then like the crowd gets whipped up into a frenzy. It's like, ugh, do not I blame do not that. envy the people in the club. I blame everything on Cy. Oh, absolutely. He did that. Yeah. I mean he set it up at a club that was ill equipped to deal with it. It makes me glad that Cy is left in the alleyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was pretty good. Yeah. It was pretty good. And weird thing is, is after that, we don't see Cy for a while. Yeah, he kind of uh, disappears for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. We don't see him till Miami, really. Mm. So getting into the behind the scenes stuff, or maybe not the behind, uh, getting into the 
critical reception to this movie. Mm -hmm. So The Bodyguard opened on November 25th, 1992. It grossed $16.6 million in its opening weekend, ranking third. The budget for this movie was $25 million, and the eventual box office intake was $411 million. I am so pleased that it did so well. Yeah. I think this movie deserved to do that well. Yeah. It spent 10 weeks in the top 10. Wow. And ultimately grossed $121.9 million domestically with $410.9 million worldwide. Just huge hit. Yeah, I'm very pleased that it did so well. Yeah. So on Rotten Tomatoes, The Bodyguard has a 35% approval rating from 48 reviews and an average rating of 5 out of 10, which doesn't make much sense to me, but the consensus on that website says that The Bodyguard is a cheesy melodramatic pop boiler with occasional moments of electricity from Whitney Houston. On Metacritic, the film has a score of 38 out of 100 based on reviews from 20 critics indicating generally unfavorable reviews. (gasps) Wow. Audiences surveyed by CinemaScore gave the film a grade of B plus on a scale of A plus to F. So I think this movie is a, like, it's an audience movie. It's not a critic movie. I think I can see that. It does have its flaws. One particular critic, Owen Gleiberman of Entertainment Weekly, wrote, To say that Houston and Costner fail to strike sparks would be putting it mildly. He added, The movie gives us these two self-centered celebrity icons working hard to look as if they want each other. It's like watching two statues attempting to mate. Roger Roger Ebert gave it three out of four stars and wrote, The movie does contain a love story, but it's the kind of guarded passion that grows between two people who spend a lot of time keeping their priorities straight. Mm. The film is listed in the Golden Raspberry Award founder John Wilson's The Official Razzie Movie Guide as one of the top 100 most enjoyable bad movies ever made. (gasps) I kind of take that personally. (laughs) Because I think this movie is delightful, and I appreciate it. I think it was Ebert that said it looks like a love story between two people who spend most of the time keeping their priorities straight. Yeah. Because that's what it's about, is that he knows, he knows that he is not supposed to fall in love with this woman. And he is trying very, very hard not to do so and failing. Yep. And that is his character arc. And she is just, I'm going to love everybody. I'm going to love and do whatever I want. If I meet a random Secret Service agent at a party, I'm going to take that man to bed because that's what I feel like doing. She has her priority of living her life. The way she wants to. And Mm -hmm. he has a priority of keeping her alive. And that's at odds. Very much so. Well, now that we've heard what other people think of it, what is your favorite part of this movie? The date. The date is my favorite thing. The way that they interact together. She is so like bright and electric in the way that she talks to people one-on-one. It's wonderful to watch. And it's so nice that it brings this man who is closed in and guarded, it starts to bring him out of his shell Uh to the point where he makes a joke. She, rather callously, is talking about past loves. And she says, what's the matter? Did your last love die while you were guarding her? And I'm like, wow, probably not the right way to go with a joke. And so he tricks her into thinking that's what happened. And she starts to feel really bad. And he's like, no, I'm just kidding. I thought that was like a really nice interaction and their dancing together was phenomenal. That's when they were talking about the uh, Dolly Parton song and 
physically they're really well matched. When they were dancing together, they just looked really comfortable. Yeah. It felt very natural for the two of them to be standing close and in each other's arms and laughing and talking. It felt really nice. I think even though they are so different, the actors are so different, the characters are so different, their date feels really nice. That was my favorite part. Mm. What about yours? I think my favorite part, and I'm going to be a total dude about this. (laughs) When the assassin is attacking the, I guess, farmer family cabin (laughs) and Frank pursues the assassin into the woods. Yeah. There's one point where Frank and the assassin have stopped and they are listening for each other. And Frank has his gun out. And what he does is close his eyes because he's listening primarily and he doesn't want any visual stimulus to distract him from what he's shooting at. And so he's sitting there with his eyes closed and his gun out. And every time he hears a twig snap or crunching of snow, he turns that direction and he comes really close to shooting this guy in the head. Yeah. Inches off. And I just thought that was really awesome. And it was a sort of payoff to the beginning of the movie where Frank is showing Devaney, oh, how good are you? And then he does the throwing knives in the backyard, and he kind of whiffs the first couple, but then the last three are, like, dead on. Yeah. I enjoy the show of competence. Yeah. I'd love a guy who's competent. Yeah. We had seen examples of his skill before. Like, Mm -hmm. we know he's good at what he does. We had heard stories, and we saw it firsthand, but seeing him do that was Excellent. Mm -hmm. All right. What's your least favorite part of this movie? Mm. Pretend you're on Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) (laughs) I think the thing that I enjoyed the least about this movie is Rachel's attitude. Oh, yeah. And I get that she doesn't want Frank there to begin with and because she doesn't know why he's really there. But what really drives me nuts is the back and forth that she does. One day she likes him, and one day she hates him. And then the next day she likes him again, and the next day she hates him again. And seriously, on the days that she doesn't like him, holy sass, Batman. Like, she's the queen of side-eye. <laughs> like, just the comments that she makes to him on days that she doesn't like him are brutal. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful <laughs> in its own context, but the overall up and down and up and down, I... I I didn't like it. It's a bit I didn't tiring. like it for Frank. Yeah. Yeah. It was too much for me. I didn't enjoy it. I would have rather one continuous sweep up. Like, have a space of time where she doesn't like him. Give him all the sass and side eye and comments that you want because those were great and Whitney Houston was phenomenal at delivering them. Great. But then she starts up that arc of understanding him and liking him and then loving him instead of this constant up and down that we get. My least favorite part about this movie is that it was two hours. (laughs) I think this movie was too long. I think they could have easily trimmed 20 minutes out of it by just making things a little snappier. There are some scenes that just seem superfluous in hindsight. They do the montage of Frank overseeing the overhaul of the security at the mansion. There's the kitchen fight between Frank and Tony that just seems really unnecessary. Oh, it was good, though. Uh, was it, though? It was good in its own thing because 
Tony is taking umbrage against Frank, like, doing his job. And so they fight. And at the end, Frank says, and I don't want to talk about this ever again. It was so good because they didn't say a word. Yeah. So the fight in and of itself, I really liked. Oh, the oh my gosh. He pinned Tony to the floor under the chair and then sat on the chair eating his peach. Come on. That was so good. <laughs> but I agree that the movie was too long. I really do. Yeah. And I absolutely agree. There were whole sequences that didn't need to be there. They go to too many places, in my opinion. There were a like, lot of different sets. They've got the mansion. They've got the nightclub. They've got Miami. They've got the cabin. They've got the Oscars. That's five different locations over the course of the whole movie. Yeah. I feel like in order to keep it snappy, maybe trim it back to four. I think they could have ditched Miami. Yeah. The plot moving events that happened in Miami could have been done in LA. Yeah. What was the thing that moved forward in Miami? Uh, let's see. They, she met met, they met Portman. Port, they met Portman. Um, they get... Um, she gets a phone call from the stalker. That's true. She gets a phone call from the stalker. The two of them, Frank and Rachel, go up and down some more. Frank yeah. quits. He's like, after this Miami trip, I'm done. Yeah. It's like, I'll get you home from Miami, and then I'm done. But and then she gets the phone call, it freaks her out, and she begs him to stay. Like, it, Again, more just, with the up and down. Mm, yeah. It just, I, I felt like this movie was inflated in the runtime, and yeah. that was my least favorite part about this. It yeah. could have been much more snappy. And I, I like a snappy movie. I think they easily could have at least brought it down below two hours. It was two hours, mm-hmm. nine minutes. They could have easily shaved off 15 minutes without even taking a play from the plot or the number of sets. Mm-hmm. Just trimming things up. Yeah. Not everything can be Road Warrior. <laughs> in and out in 95 minutes. Yep. <laughs> but overall, what'd you think? Overall, I enjoyed this movie. Absolutely. I think it's got a lot of charm. I really dug the chemistry between Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston. I can definitely see where Ebert was coming from when he <laughs> gave the review that he did. <laughs> but I think the back and forth between the two of them, I really liked it. I would watch this movie again, given the opportunity. I have to agree with you. Yeah, I would watch this movie again. I have a lot of the same thoughts that you did. The chemistry... One thing I liked about their chemistry was that it was a bit unusual. Yes, it was. And I can definitely understand critics who just don't see it that way as good chemistry. But I think their unusual chemistry is part of their characters. That if they're going to have chemistry, it's going to be unconventional. Yeah. But I liked it. I cannot say enough. Cannot praise enough Whitney Houston in this movie. She was absolutely stellar. So I really enjoyed it. I am very relieved that it held up to my memory. I had a great time. Yeah. I'm glad this is the first Kevin Costner movie that we watched for this hiatus. It will not be the last. So listeners, thank you for joining us this week. Keep an eye on the feed because next month we will be coming back with another hiatus episode. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham, produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of danielbatista.com. Our website is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Mad Max Minute. Like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute. And support the podcast by visiting patreon.com slash madmaxmin. Thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute. We'll see you next time.